Hey everyone, happy World Oceans Day. On this day, we're thinking about the two-thirds of the world that's covered in briny water. If you throw something in the ocean, it can end up anywhere. That might be quaint in the 19th century, you know, messages in a bottle and stuff, but today, we would just call that litter. Don't throw it in the ocean, man. Come on, send a tweet or something. On this rebroadcasted episode, we're going to talk about where the oceans came from and where they're going, why they're so important to us, what we don't know about them, how we are using them all the time, how they're in trouble, because they are. But first, thank you to everyone who subscribes to our channel. We are so thankful all the time for that. You can find more Seeker on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you name it, and more. You can also find me out there at Trace Dominguez. But anyway... We're here to talk oceans. So over the next 30 minutes, we're going to wade into everything you need to know about the ocean. It's going to be super cool. I'm really freaked out because of undersea life, but I'm really excited. So let's kick into it. So how big are the oceans? They're big. I mean, really big. And what is in them? We'll get to that. So first, the oceans are huge. They are 71% of Earth's entire surface. We are a blue planet, not a green or brown or other planet. We are a blue planet. Technically, even though people talk about sailing the seven seas, we have five oceans. The Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Southern Ocean, which is the newest, we'll get to that, and also the big guy, the Pacific Ocean. For many years, the world only had four oceans. But in the year 2000, the International Hydrographic Organization established the Southern Ocean. They determined that its limits were all water below 60 degrees south. Some of that water, by the way, is frozen, but it's a pretty huge part of the Earth. So that puts it the second smallest ocean, but still a lot of space. So the Arctic Ocean is 2.8% of the Earth's surface the Southern Ocean is 4% of the Earth's surface. The Indian Ocean is 13.4% of the Earth's surface. The Atlantic, which is pretty big, is 15% of the Earth's surface. The Pacific is 30.5% of the Earth's surface. It's huge. Almost a third of our planet is the Pacific Ocean. And in case you're wondering in terms of measurement, that is 1.87 quintillion gallons. It's a lot of water. 7,000 trillion liters for those in the SI system. So inside of these oceans, obviously, there's all sorts of life. The marine life relies a lot on a pretty big part of the ocean, and that is salt. Salt is huge in the ocean. I mean, it's actually dissolved into the ocean, so it's not literally huge. But ocean salinity can actually vary drastically from place to place. Ocean water contains tons of different mineral salts. It's not all the same salt. Inside of ocean water, there's obviously... Sodium, there's chloride, sulfate, magnesium, calcium, potassium, bicarbonate, and bromide salts. These salts enter the ocean through the rivers because all of this water is raining down onto the land and it slowly erodes and runs all the way into the ocean, picking up salt along the way from all of these rocks that it passes over. When the water passes over those rocks, it picks up these little minerals and then deposits them into the ocean. Now, it builds up in the oceans because the only way water can leave the ocean, because it can't flow uphill, is through evaporation. And that leaves the salt behind. So eventually, over billions of years, the ocean becomes salty. And salt water is great for marine life. There's a reason that marine life is super diverse and there's so much stuff in there. There's up to a million species in the seas, we think. 25% to 80% of the species in the oceans still need to be described. We don't actually 
know a lot about them. We are using computer models to guess at how much there is out there based on what we found so far. But when a scientist says things need to be described, it means that they think they're there, they just haven't grabbed onto one and been able to get a good look at it. In 2007, a member of the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, also known as UNESCO, we are never gonna say that on the show again, I promise, we'll just say UNESCO. His name was Ward Appletons. He led a European team to expand the efforts of creating a list of sea life to encompass all of the world's marine species. Surprisingly, this had not been done. It was a huge undertaking. Appletons and his team contacted more than 250 world experts on marine life, and they cataloged all of the world's known ocean species and found that there was actually a surprising number of duplicate species because, see, when there's a child that's born, as Appleton said, you need to go to City Hall and you need to register the name of that baby and say, hey, there's a new baby born, so everybody knows. But when there's a new species found, all you gotta do is publish a paper. And if people aren't reading every paper, some duplicates are bound to happen. So as of late 2012, the team had cataloged 226,000 species, excluding marine bacteria. Another 65,000 are waiting to be described at museums and collections. So we have one, we just haven't you know, written a paper about it yet. And they used a computer simulation and a model to determine that there are between 700,000 and 1 million species living in the oceans as of now. The database that they created where you can look up all of this stuff is the World Register of Marine Species, cleverly titled Worms. So silly. And as Appleton said, it's in our nature that we want to know what exists on Earth. We want to know what's out there in our oceans. 71% of our entire planet is the ocean. And there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about it. We've kind of had a vague idea of what is in the ocean in terms of its physical structures, right? What the seafloor might look like. And we know that the ocean contains the largest mountain ranges on Earth, for example. Canyons, which would make the Grand Canyon look like a dinky little thing. And cliffs with three or four mile drops off of the edge of them. These are huge things. They're all under the water. We also know that the word bathymetry is the measurement of the depth of water. Fun fact for you, it's a great word. People say that we explore more space than we do the ocean, but that's not really true. I mean, yes, NASA's budget is larger. It's $18 billion in 2015, and the Senate bill for NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, that's only $456 million proposed for 2015. But NASA's includes billions for Earth sciences, which is where space points down at the ground. We get ocean observations, we get weather satellites, all of that helps us learn about the oceans, even though it's technically in NASA's budget. In 2013, oceanographer David G. Gallo said that we've explored less than 10% of this planet, maybe even less than 5%. But only a couple years later now, in 2015, that is not completely accurate. There's been huge breakthroughs in the last couple of years in ocean exploration. First, NOAA came out with a 3D interactive map last year in 2014. They actively update the map and they've looked at less than 10% of the ocean floor through this map using survey data dating back to 1937. And they combine sonars, they combine radio waves and mapping of ships that are going in straight lines across the ocean, right? So they get like about 10% of the ocean floor that way. But then they added satellite radar altimeter data, which made this map incredible. The satellites repeatedly scanned the water's surface and they corrected for waves and for tides 
And then they used a picture of the sea surface that reflected the sea floor below. They did that by looking at how gravity pulls on seawater. So the seamount exerts gravitational pull on sea surfaces. So what happens is they map the bottom of the ocean by just looking at how gravity changes the sea surface. It's kind of complicated, but it's so cool. And now the map is twice as accurate as past surveys and endless more regions of the ocean have been mapped using this system. Now we're starting to pinpoint previously unknown ridges and shelves, volcanoes, all sorts of things that exist underneath the ocean surface. Uh, and there's a lot of them, but one of many examples that was previously unknown is an 800-kilometer-long ridge in the South Atlantic Ocean that formed after Africa and North America rifted apart. Super cool. We learned this because we started taking all this data and putting it together. And we've gotten even better than that because in 2015, the University of Sydney's School of Geosciences created a digital map of seafloor geology. They took 15,000 seafloor samples, taken over a half of a century, and they generated the map. It's the first time that this has been mapped in 40 years. Originally, they were using a hand-drawn map from the 1970s. Everybody was just using this map that some dude drew out. And now we've got this digital map that combines all of these different samples. They learned so much just from creating these resources. Another example, because there's a lot, but we're just going to have one, is that it was believed, until they did this, that the ocean around Australia was mainly covered by clay. Boring. You know, who cares? But it turns out it's actually a complex patchwork of microfossil remains, and it all surrounds that continent. Super cool, and now we know. But even with all this new information, we still don't have a super detailed view of what is underneath the surface of our oceans. It's kind of like, I don't know, think of it like a Christmas present, right? It's all wrapped up, and you kind of make out the general shape, but it's not like we can get in there and shake it, right? More research is definitely needed to find out what is going on inside of the ocean's wrapping paper. But let me break it down just a little bit. Yes, NASA has a bigger budget, but we've explored, you know, five to 10% of the oceans as of 2013. We have not explored five to 10% of space, not even five to 10% of our solar system. Plus, without NASA, we don't have satellites that look back at the ocean. We don't have these satellite maps that can look at the seafloor and map gravitational changes and things. It's a win-win. We're working together in this, guys. You know, wait till we have to go to Europa with like a spaceship, literally like a space boat. We're going to need ocean knowledge for that too. So they're just going to keep working together. And it's crucially important that we gain more information about the world's oceans. We can understand then how climates are changing and affecting the oceans, which will ultimately affect us. The ocean holds an incredible amount of resources, and I'm talking about incredible. It's pretty much impossible to describe all of the resources that the oceans bring literally to you right now. But first and foremost is food. The ocean provides food in the form of fish and form of shellfish at about 200 billion pounds of food every single year. Historically, fish have played a significant role for humanity. We used to live near the water so that we could pull this food right out of it individually, and it provides large fractions of our food sources throughout human history. Originally, fisheries were these kinds of low-intensity, low-technology fisheries. We would just take fish out of the river nearest where our villages were, and it was a sustainable rate because there wasn't that many humans. But that's taken a turn in the last 100 years with industrial fishing, but we'll get back to that a little later. 
We also use the ocean for transportation and shipping. We take these giant boats and we throw them across the ocean, right? It takes a lot of energy to move a boat, but it takes more energy to move across the land or through the air. So if you look at every major city that's ever existed before the invention of the vehicle, like the car or semi-trucks, they are all by the water. And even a lot of major cities that were founded later are also near waterways because waterways are the highways of men. This is how we got things around through most of human history, including ourselves and all of our stuff. But today, even still, hundreds of years into moving things by boat, 90% of everything goes by sea. That's insane. There's also energy that we get from the ocean. Not just in the terms of like, ah, energy. I'm talking like non-renewable energy like hydrocarbons, you know, natural oil and gas that can be found in pockets underneath the ocean seafloor. That gives us energy for running things like cars and planes and boats and heating our homes and all sorts of other stuff. Of course, burning hydrocarbons equals making CO2 and greenhouse gases. That's bad and ultimately harms the ocean. But obviously, we're trying to get away from that. So the ocean can also produce renewable energy. For example, tidal energy. This is where the energy of the tides, which is driven by the tidal locking of the moon pulling the water around our planet, that can be used to generate electricity. According to the National Oceanography Center, large tides around the coast can be used to make energy in two different ways. One is a tidal stream. So you take a turbine, you put it under the water in a narrow channel or in a, like a headland, a seabed somewhere, and then water flowing back and forth as the tides come in and out, turn the turbine, generating electricity. The first one was built in 2008. It was the first tidal stream device, and it was placed in Strangford Law in Northern Ireland. Pretty awesome. But there's also tidal range, which is where you use the height of the tides. You anchor something on the seafloor and then have a connected rope to a float. So as the tides go in and out, the rope goes up and down, and that generates electricity as well. There's also wind energy, of course. You know, we have that on land. The movement of air across the Earth is a huge source of kinetic energy, which turns a turbine and generates electricity. But wind blows even faster over the sea than it does over land. Offshore wind turbines can generate 25% more electricity than their onshore counterparts. So aside from energy and aside from shipping and all of these other things, there's also tourism, you know, that has people all over the world flocking to beaches and onto the oceans for tourist attractions with undersea life, with scuba diving, with whale watching, sailing and cruises, all sorts of things. All of those involve the ocean and that happens every day all over the planet. On top of that, construction uses the ocean to gather up sand and gravel. There's massive amounts of sand and gravel underneath the ocean and Concrete is made of sand and gravel, so we need that to create buildings and sidewalks and all sorts of other industrial applications. And the oceans don't just help us. You know, these were all very human-centric things from shipping and tourism and stuff, but they also help the environment, the atmosphere, the world in general, the climate. A lot of that is run by the oceans. So think about it this way. The oceans are a carbon sink. We produce carbon dioxide and the ocean sucks it up. And it's super important for the health of the Earth. Carbon dioxide levels in the Earth's atmosphere have increased dramatically in the last 100 plus years. And to stop the CO2 from just getting dumped into the atmosphere, scientists think that we could put a little collector on top of power stations that produce a lot of CO2 or on top of factories. And then that could be piped and injected into underground reservoirs and never reach the atmosphere the ocean would just kind of suck it up. 
The CO2 can be transported by pipeline to a geological storage site, like an underground reservoir, as I mentioned, and that can be either under the ocean or even on land if it has to be. It's one way that we can use the ocean and use the underground reservoirs to help protect the planet. Of course, it would be better to not produce so much CO2, but hey, you know, people are going to do what they got to do. Habitats like marine habitats such as coral reefs support all sorts of different things from biodiversity to, again, tourism. And then we also rely on a lot of corals and a lot of that biodiversity for medicines and different things that we can't necessarily synthesize on our own. On top of that, and I know I've already said quite a few, but this is the crazy part. Water circulation and exchange in the ocean drives pretty much the rest of our lives. You probably never even think about it, and many of you have probably never even heard about it. But water circulation is essential for life in the oceans, and it's also then essential for life on land. Water circulation enables the transport of nutrients and oxygenated water from the top of the ocean to the bottom, as well as around the ocean. So water that comes from the deep ocean, it's called upwelling, tends to be nutrient-rich because it picks up minerals from the seafloor, but it's oxygen-poor because it's a lot harder to dissolve oxygen under that pressure. It's also very cold. So as that comes up in an upwelling, that pushes other water out of the way into a downwelling, and that's when warmer, oxygen-rich surface water is pressed downward into the deep sea, moving the nutrients from the top down to the bottom and the heat and also life that exists closer to the top where there is sunlight. All of this cycle ends up bringing life and nutrients and heat all over the different parts of the ocean, and it's super awesome, you guys. And without it, a lot of things would go wrong. 250 million years ago, deep circulation in this way slowed almost to a stop. We know this by looking at how the ocean's acid levels change throughout history. We're going to come back to this, but essentially it's a mass extinction and it's bad. A lot of things died, like 95% of all marine life. There's also nutrient recycling in the ocean. This is the storage and cycling of the life that goes through the upwelling and downwelling. These are microscopic animals that live in the oceans and are eaten by a lot of other things and produce a lot of our oxygen that we breathe here on the surface. Marine microbial nutrient cycling is essential for what they call primary production, essentially phytoplankton and algae plants. Similar to the grasslands of Africa, North America, the rainforests of the tropics, these things produce a lot of resources that other animals can use. Without these energy producers, there'd be nothing for higher order animals in the ocean to feed on. Without the basis for most life on Earth of these sea animals and this oxygen, pretty much all of us would die. So let's hope that's good because yay oxygen, <laughs> breathing, woo, it's always good. Anyway, we've been kind of working with the ocean for a long time. How did they get here? How do we have oceans today? So obviously our survival hinges on the survival of the ocean. I mean, we all kind of get that if you've stuck around this far into the series, but we aren't even actually sure how the oceans got here in the first place. I mean, we don't even know. It's not like we were there. The leading theory for a long time, and still one of the leading theories, is that ice comets bombarded the Earth in the early days, like billions of years ago. And eventually those ice comets melted because comets are made mostly of ice and dust. So the more comets that hit us, the more water we had. And today we have a lot of it. So that's a lot of comets. But a new popular study in 2014 by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution says that the planet formed as what they call a wet planet. 
with water on the surface already. This was about 4.6 billion years ago when all the worlds of the inner solar system were still forming. And at that time, there was a lot of bombardment happening in the inner solar system. So we might have had a lot of comets and a lot of other things hitting us. Then in the subsequent billions of years, more water arrived. And an alternate but supporting study to that suggests that researchers discovered a huge reserve of water located deep in the Earth, in the transition zone, they call it, which is between the upper and lower mantle. So if you've got the crust, you've got the upper mantle and the lower mantle, there's a bunch of water trapped in there, maybe 250 to 400 so miles below the Earth's crust. It's a lot of water, though, like three times the size of our oceans in terms of water volume. But don't picture like journey to the center of the Earth. You know, the temperature and pressure is so high in there that it's not like a pool of water, but we're talking there is water present, as in water molecules. Ideally, we would have an answer here, but we honestly don't. Scientists have no idea how we got all of this water. But water doesn't actually seem to be that rare in the universe. We're not entirely sure how we've got it, but if you've paid attention to Mars news, Mars has got water too. I mean, we've known for a long time that it has polar ice caps and maybe has water underneath the surface. But recent discoveries in the last few years have shown that there's water in the dirt. There's water maybe even flowing on the slopes of Mars. Highly salty water, but water nonetheless. Why is this important? Because water gives rise to life as we know it. Obviously that happened here on Earth, yay, but it also might happen on other planets. The Basically, if you look for water, you find aliens. We've talked about this in previous series. Make sure you check those out. Because civilizations as we know it need water too. The most obvious place to find intelligent life like ourselves is to look for water. Based on what we know about biochemistry in the universe, an alien would need a solvent like water and one or more elemental units for its structure like carbon. You know, obviously we're biased because we're carbon-based life that likes water, but hey, no judgment. You do you, aliens. Solvents are important to enable chemical reactions inside of the body that would be a xenobiology, I guess, as well as physically transporting materials around said body. So on Earth, we love us some liquid solvent, obviously of water. Find the liquid water, maybe we'll find the aliens. Could be wrong entirely, of course, because xenobiology is just like that. But Water and potentially life on other planets could be pretty close to us. Jupiter's moon Europa is covered by ice. And inside of that ice is water, or so they think. They think so because this moon Europa has tidal energy created by the giant planet that it orbits. It's being crushed and then expanded and crushed again by Jupiter's gravity. And that movement heats up the inside of the planet. There might be 10 times the depth of Earth's oceans on the surface of Europa. And scientists believe that hydrothermal vents created by the heat of that compression and expansion could exist at the bottom of those oceans. And hydrothermal vents also exist here on Earth, which is pretty amazing. And we find a lot of alienish life near those hydrothermal vents. That heat and the minerals from the internal parts of the Earth that are spewing out is like the perfect soup for life. So we might find it right here in our own solar system. That would be insane. We've got missions going there soon. But basically, understanding extreme life on Earth, the bottom of our oceans in places like Antarctica, 
can help us find and understand life elsewhere in the galaxy. Literally the first video I ever did for discoverynews.com was about new species that they had discovered around hydrothermal vents in Antarctica. We're looking for this now. It's super awesome, and it's why we explore the deep ocean. Oh, I love it. If you look at the fact that scientists supposedly discovered the largest reservoir ever in the universe, the universe may be way wetter than we thought. They found a gigantic black hole that's spewing out a cloud of water in the middle of the universe. And NASA says the amount of water found in this massive cloud is 140 trillion times all the water on all of the world's oceans. It's a lot of water. That could supply then, if you think about it, 140 trillion Earth-sized planets with the same amount of water that we have. They're bigger, you know, a few less, but whatever. It's math. Sounds great. We gotta go find those. We're gonna get serious for a minute. Are the oceans screwed? I hope not. Ocean acidification is affecting us now, and it's affecting us because it's affecting marine life, and we are all connected. And the end of the Permian period, that was 250 million years ago, was something called the Great Dying. 90%, over 90% of all ocean life died, in part due to ocean acidification. By analyzing boron embedded in limestone from the Permian and Triassic periods, researchers found an abrupt shift in ocean pH levels. Now, pH is a measure of acid versus base, and life can only exist with a nice balance. Surface ocean pH levels dropped from 0.6 to 0.7 pH units in about 10,000 years during the Great Dying. Modern ocean pH levels have fallen by that same change, like that same delta, 0.1 pH units, since the Industrial Revolution started. That's only 200 years. That's 50 times faster than the 10,000 years measured by the boron concentrations from the Permian to the Triassic periods. pH is a logarithmic scale, so a tiny change like 0.1, while it doesn't seem like that much, that's humongous. That is a 30% increase in acidity. Ocean acidification is driven by excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because CO2 in the air dissolves into water. It's the reason that if you leave a glass of water out at night, the next day it tastes a little funny because it's got carbonic acid in it. CO2 from the air has dissolved into the water. According to geochemist and postdoctoral fellow at the University of Otago in New Zealand, his name is Matthew Clarkson, he said, this was a pretty enormous change in acidity. I think it might be a massive warning in a worst case scenario if we carry on with fossil fuels. The diversity after the great dying didn't recover for five million years. Needless to say, we won't be around for that long if we do kill off 90 to 95% of all ocean life. According to new research by the World Wildlife Fund, the other WWF, and the Zoological Society of London, the ZSL, overfishing and other threats have trimmed the amount of fish in the world's oceans to nearly half what was there in 1970. This is called industrial fishing. Essentially, we go out and catch as much fish as possible and bring it back in, as opposed to just catching what we need. Populations of some commercial fish stocks, including tuna, mackerel, and bonito, have fallen almost 75% since industrial fishing began. And according to the director of the WWF, the World Wildlife one, not the TV one, Marco Lambertini, there is a massive, massive decrease in species which are critical for both the ocean ecosystem and food security 
for billions of people. The ocean is resilient, but there is a limit. One solution that we talked a little bit about that I remember researching was to literally close the oceans, make it illegal to fish in the oceans for many years. I don't remember how many, but it was like more than a decade. The reason being, it would allow fish stocks to rebound. We're just pulling them out faster than they can breed and create more fish. 80% of the pollution of the marine environment comes from the land, and that is another problem that the fish have to face. Agricultural fertilizers and pesticides run, just like the rivers, off into the ocean. Evidence shows that the oceans have suffered at the hands of mankind for millennia. I mean, this isn't a new thing. It goes far back as Roman times, but now it's even worse than ever. Recent studies show that degradation, particularly of shoreline areas, has accelerated dramatically in the last 300 years. There's industrial discharge. There's runoff from farms and coastal cities. Fertilizer causes algae blooms that can be toxic and suck the oxygen out of the water. The industrial chemicals kill off massive amounts of life and can destroy phytoplankton, which produce oxygen for us and are things that, you know, animals actually have to eat in the ocean. On top of that, we're dumping our trash into the ocean. There was a time when humans thought, the world is so big, we can just throw our trash here and no one will ever notice. But now solid waste like bags that never, ever breaks down, foam that never breaks down, and other items that are dumped into the oceans by land or on ships are frequently consumed by marine mammals and fish and birds. They mistake it for food, they eat it, and it does all sorts of terrible things. We haven't even mentioned in this entire series the Pacific Garbage Gyre or the Pacific Trash Vortex. It's estimated to be the size of Texas. And although I know what you're picturing, and that is, you know, like after a hurricane floating, you know, piles of trash all clumped together, that's not what it looks like. If you were standing in the middle of it, you wouldn't even see it unless you put a strainer into the water and pulled it out. You would see these tiny microscopic pieces of plastic and little teeny bits that you can see maybe, but they're kind of like little, they're so small that fish eat them. And then they eat them and eat them and eat them until their stomach is full of plastic and they can't eat the food they're supposed to eat. Because of all this and climate change, the oceans are being decimated. Our oceans are also getting hotter. Changing weather systems are going to affect humans directly and maybe already have. According to NOAA, the 21st century will likely cause tropical cyclones globally to be more intense on average, by 2 to 11%. That doesn't sound like much, but when it comes to a hurricane, you really don't want it to be 10% more powerful, right? Michael Mann, a climate researcher at Penn State University, told the Washington Post, as ocean temperatures continue to warm as a result of human-caused climate change, we expect hurricanes to intensify, and we expect to cross new thresholds. Hurricane Patricia, which hit Mexico just recently, and her unprecedented 200-mile-per-hour sustained winds appears to be one of those now, unfortunately. That's crazy. Hurricane Patricia was the largest hurricane to ever make landfall, and when oceans heat up, even by a degree or two, it can cause major consequences for the life in the ocean and for the life on land. The oceans are literally the biggest single thing on our planet. Aside from the planet itself, there's nothing else on Earth that takes up as much volume. The oceans are so important that 
Without them, we literally could not live on the surface. Think of Mars. It used to have oceans. Now it doesn't. Would you want to live there? Probably not. Without them, we would never survive. They are an amazing resource, they're inspirational, and without them, how would we move stuff around the planet? We use them every single day, even if you live in the middle of a desert. The oceans are benefiting you, which is incredible. They're our greatest resource, and without them, what would we do? Thank you so much for listening to Seeker Plus. I hope you enjoyed this old episode. I know I mentioned Hurricane Patricia a few minutes ago, so here's a quick update. Hurricane Patricia was the most powerful hurricane ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere. Not to make landfall, ever. Storms do appear to be getting worse. 2017 saw four Category 3 storms hit the U.S. And globally, we should end up with more storms at the high end, at Category 4 and 5, according to Kevin Trenberth, a senior scientist in the Climate Analysis Section of the National Center for Atmospheric Research. It was reported by Scientific American. Again, here on World Oceans Day, it's important to remember that global warming and climate change don't just affect your AC bill. It can affect everything, everywhere, for everyone. So reduce, reuse, and recycle. Try to live sustainably, minimize your plastic waste, and definitely volunteer with your local community to help clean up the plastic on the beaches. I have done it, and you will be aghast at what some people will just throw into the ocean. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. I am still Trace, and you can find us all over on Seeker at youtube.com slash Seeker, also on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. I am also there at Trace Dominguez. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you loved this episode, and if you did, leave us a rating and share us with your friends. We'll see you next time on Seeker Plus. Seeker Plus.